This is Tripwire Week in Review for week ending October 2nd. I'm Martha Kocher with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. Joining me are Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Joe McBride, Head of CRE Finance. This week, economic data reported underscores where the recovery is happening and where it isn't. Job stats, both ADP and the government unemployment numbers beat expectations. U.S. manufacturing, while softer than expected, did expand in September for the fifth month. And while consumers grew more optimistic about the economy, they earned less and spending slowed. More sobering, we saw a record number of retail bankruptcies logged in the first half of the year, a round of large layoffs from Disney, United, American, and Shell, and a report that says that half of all New York City restaurants may close for good. Manus, with a lot of headwinds and uncertainties, it does seem that the economy is still grinding its way forward. Yeah, it was an interesting week, uh, to say the least. I'll start by noting that uh, at TREP, our fiscal year begins on October 1st. So uh, I am putting a stake in 2020. For me, 2021 has officially begun. Um, I'm throwing uh, in the towel on on. Uh, 2020, uh, with all its warts and problems, when you think of everything from, you know, the locust swarm in Africa to the death of Helen Reddy this week and Mac Davis and everything in between, uh, 2020 was a miserable year. Um, so I'm glad at least fiscally I could put that behind us. Um, in terms of uh, economically, um, you know, obviously we had the debate on Tuesday for which um, many the antique roadshow, kind of, as you called it the other day. Well, the antique roadshow, I said, um, <laughs> the more fitting uh, thing to watch and, and maybe to to call uh, the event. But um, we had many people pinging us among our listeners, uh, mentioning that you know they had PTSD after that and they had to turn it off. And you know, so uh, I, I think that people were looking for something good on Wednesday and we got something, a couple of things that were really good economically, which was just kind of the balm, if you will, that we needed uh, coming off um, what was kind of a volatile night, Tuesday night. You know, specifically what we saw was the ADP jobs report, 750,000 new jobs added, which was terrific. It was about 125,000 jobs higher than estimates and 250,000 better than the August print um, that helped the market really get off to a great start on Wednesday morning. Um, we saw the supply management's Chicago PMI uh, coming much higher than expected. Uh, another uh, great sign. Um, to be to be clear, though, some of these numbers are coming off you know really low numbers for June, July, and August. But improvement is improvement, and uh, after what we've been through since March, I think that this is. Uh, encouraging. Uh, the National Association of Realtors pending home sales hit an all-time high. Um, the Schiller Index for what prices are going for. You know, if you're buying a home, this is not great news, but uh, it's great for the confidence in the economy and people willing to pay up for houses. A nice bump in um, average home prices uh, in July uh, that came out this week. And the Conference Board's Confidence Index came in higher than expected. So, uh, at a time when um, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of layoffs, we don't have a stimulus bill, um, and, and there's a lot of uncertainty around the election, 
these were some great headlines and, and they couldn't have come at a better time. So as, um, <laughs> as sad as the debate was to watch, no matter which side of the aisle you're on or if you're in the middle or whatever, it wasn't a great, great show. Uh, it's really entertainment at this point. It's, it's political theater. It's not really, uh, they're not really actually debating. Um, and part of that, I, I found it kind of wrong that all of the networks had these like bombastic names for the program. So I think it was like ABC. It was like, it's almost like they called it rumble in the jungle or something. Like it was like, you know, the, the fight is on or, you know, time to rumble or something. It was like, you know, come on people. They're really just selling us on, on divisiveness at this point. But I feel like the, the dumb reaction that is in my brain is that if Biden wins, there's certainty, there's some form of, uh, I guess, a little bit more stability in the office and everything else. And that gives kind of the market a, a, a bomb, as you called it, a bomb with an L. Um, if Trump wins, then it's continued low taxes, high growth type policies. So that's also good. So I feel like the market is just convincing itself that things are just going to keep going up either way. Uh, I don't know if that's going to actually be the case or not, but that seemed to be the kind of theory on Wednesday. We also had the Democrats come out with a slim down um, stimulus bill. So I think that was also helpful. Uh, I don't know if it's going to get passed or not, but it has little signs of hope there. Yeah, I, I joked in our trip wire this week that, that I felt like I was the big winner. Um, my wife wanted to watch the proceedings. I wasn't keen on it. I felt like I had uh, seen enough debates in my lifetime to kind of know what to expect. Uh, and, and I wasn't planning to come out any smarter after it than I was going in. Uh, but that's how I feel about all debates. It's not a criticism of either of the candidates. Um, but the power in our South Carolina home went out 10 minutes before the debate. So I was able to um, sit in the dark and uh, meditate, which seemed like a much healthier um, way to spend 90 minutes from what my, uh, my friends had told me than uh, what they endured Tuesday night. So uh, yeah, I felt pretty good about that. Uh, going back to Joe's remark about, you know, calling the, the debate entertainment. I, I just wondered, like, what else you watch? Uh, if that's the <laughs> definition, you know, uh, is it? Uh, uh, I don't know. It's like, or <laughs> no, it's like you know, the Jersey Shore. It's entertainment. You know, I mean, it's just them yelling at each other and beating each other up. But it's, you know, for at, for a certain point in your life or a certain like level of fatigue after a long day's work, you know, sometimes you like some stupid stuff, you know. I, I can't watch things that are cringy. You know, when I was growing up, my, my parents That's why you used can't to watch, watch the office. Used to watch the, uh, the Carol Burnett show when I was like a really young. And they had this segment all the time called Mama's Family. And all the people did was yell at each other. <laughs> and, and I found it unwatchable. It was like, uh, you know, it would give me uh, the cringies. So, you know, <laughs> you remember ever, ever since then, I've been anti-cringy. <laughs> well... You've missed out on a lot of good entertainment because of that, like The Office and other, other stuff like that. But um, I would say you mentioned home sales. So I actually, I've, I keep plugging uh, Josh Brown and his podcast, The Compound. 
even though he doesn't need it. They have a lot more listeners than we do. He had a housing expert on uh, last week and I listened to it. It was a really great overview of the data. Um, and the, the, the general broad thesis was that all of this, you know, increase in home sales, the headlines and, you know, the pundits like ourselves, uh, like to attribute it to the pandemic, but this is the first year of the wave of millennials that are 30, 31, 32, 33. And it's the, the most 30 to 35 year olds that there have ever been in the United States. And that's the age at which people are having kids now. So you combine that with the lowest mortgage rates of all time and pandemic or not, there was going to be a huge, uh, I don't know, uptick in purchases of existing and new homes. So great for me, I get to buy a house in a time when we, there's um, 10 million other people looking to buy a house. That's not going to be so fun, but it's good for, I guess, good for you, Martha, if you ever, if you're ever looking to sell your house. I was never, um, terribly confident that this wave, you know, I agree with the demographics that you have an enormous number of people that are in the age of buying homes, but they came of age, right? They came out of college in a time when the economy was really, really stumbling. And I was always, you know, tremendously concerned about that generation, not having enough wealth creation to afford a house. Certainly low interest rates really, really help. Uh, but it's encouraging to see uh, this kind of demand coming from that demographic um, from people that really probably really struggled to find that first job uh, and find something that was lucrative in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12. Amen, brother. <laughs> that <Good> was me. <laughs> Good luck finding your suburban patch of land, Joe. So let's move on to a CMBS delinquency report we put out this week. Let's update the numbers. Manus, where did we end up for the month? Well, it's a mixed bag. Um, on the overall number, we saw a slight dip, about 10 basis points. We had teased this a podcast or two ago, saying that the early indications were that the number would come down. Uh, it did. We went from a little over 9% down to 8.92%. So a slight benefit, um, a slight reduction uh, lodging remains stubbornly, stubbornly high at 23%, retail at 15%. So those both came down very, very modestly. A lot of the improvement has come via the fact that loans are being made current through relief. Uh, relief coming in the form of uh, sometimes true forbearances, other times the use of um, FF&E reserves or other things. We'll talk a little bit more about our forbearance numbers shortly, but the 8.92% uh, number is probably masking on the low end what is a real delinquency number, which might be closer to, well, let's say 12 or 13% at this point. Uh, a couple of other tidbits in there. Um, the special servicing percentage went up about 30 basis points. So more loans going to the special servicer for people looking for um, workouts, uh, ideally, but sometimes it's uh, with a plan to give up on the property. 
Um, retail went up a full percentage point from 17.3% to 18.3%. Retail now 18.3% in special servicing. Uh, lodging went from 25% to 25.6%. So in each case, you know, the bathtub keeps rising for the number of loans that are of concern. You know, the biggest number of all is that when you add the percentage of loans in special servicing to the percentage of loans on service or watch list in the lodging category, you're at about 70%, just under 70%. And that is just um, unthinkable and multiples of the worst we saw during the great financial crisis. You were talking about forbearances, and I know you've done some analysis on this. Do you want to give us an overview of what you found there? Sure. Um, we did this last time in July. Our numbers were at that time, we estimated, it was a very close educated guess, that $17 billion in loans had gotten some type of relief uh, that had been spread over about 400 loans. We believe at the end of September, that's now up to 31.2 uh, billion, 800 loans. So if you're turning that into percentage terms, in terms of the private market, that would represent about 6% of the market has gotten some relief. Now, if we dig a little deeper into that, why do we say about, what, is the, what does that mean? Why is it about 31 billion? Well, most of this, came via reading special servicer and watch list notes. At, at times, um, the servicers or special servicer will, will fill out a modification code and it will tell you this is code 11 and code 11 means, or code 10, I guess it's code 10. This is a forbearance that has been granted. And those are the easy ones to kind of call. Um, the rest, it's really a question of reading uh, the notes for six or 7,000 loans and going through and figuring out was relief granted. At times, um, if it says an agreement has been made um, and it's being papered, we would say that that loan has been forborne. Some of those may unravel, but we're giving the special service or borrower credit for having crossed the finish line. Um, so there are things like that, that, that add a little bit of uh, messiness to the process, but it's about 6%, 31 billion, 800 loans. Um, we'll write more about that in, fr in Friday morning's TREP wire. So for those that are more interested uh, in what we found, you'll see it there for those that received that commentary. Of the breakdown, 64% of those that were foreborn came in the lodging category, and they really span the gamut. You see loans with balances of well above 100 million, and you see plenty that are 225 million or less. So uh, for any of these, the special servicer has to put in the same amount of effort, uh, regardless of whether it's big or small, but they're you know, cutting their teeth across the size spectrum. 28% uh, in the retail segment, 5% in mixed use, and then one or 2% in things like uh, office, industrial, multifamily. Those are really drips and drabs Two other things that I would point to, which are um, very concerning if you are in the CMBS market and you're an investor, um, it's probably something for which you would be licking your chops if you're a distressed asset buyer. And that is the number of times that we saw um, 
the borrower looking to transition the property back, quote unquote, or turn the keys over via deed in lieu was enormous. You know, dozens and dozens and dozens of loans in that category. Some we've written about in Tripwire, but for people that want to get ahead on their homework and have access through our data feed of those notes, um, there's really an opportunity to get ahead. We also saw a significant number of comments where the watch list or the servicer note, usually the service, special servicer note said, um, pursuing note sale. So it is very likely that we will see over the next 30 to 60 days, a lot more loans go from uh, in foreclosure to REO and a lot more um, being offered via note sale through either brokers uh, or through uh, auction sites. So we're at around 10% in special servicing in the 10.3%. Right, and you say that, you know, based on a, your analysis of the comments, which is not perfectly scientific, but it's pretty good. Uh, around 6% of the universe has gotten a forbearance, right? Right. So, and most of these forbearances remain in special servicing, even though they get taken out of delinquency. Not right? necessarily. I, no. I don't know the number there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's less than you would think for two reasons. One is that some of these things, the relief is being given through a non-transfer consent, mm -hmm. which so means not special, even in special servicing. They never went, but the master servicer is permitted to allow the borrower to tap FF&E reserves right. or other things, or it's been transferred back because the resolution has been met and it's now back with the master servicer. Um, but I don't have a percentage on that, but it's right. some number. So I was just thinking, like thinking of looking at it, you know, 10% in special servicing, 6% has gotten forbearance. So it's almost like they're 50% of the way through the stuff that's currently in special servicing anyway. There's 60% of the way through. Obviously, there's others. It's a, there's probably a big rounding error there, but it's somewhat promising that there's, they don't have, uh, you know, it's not 20% in special servicing and 3% forbearance. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, I mean, I think we need to um, tip our caps a little bit. I mean, the borrowers that listen on may be, you know, ready to make voodoo dolls of me after I say this, <laughs> um, because the borrower experience sometimes is that the servicers and special servicers are um, hard to deal with and um, have their hands tied and are not very flexible. Some of that may be true, but a lot of that is the nature of the beast and the limitations of the pooling and servicing agreement and or uh, REMIC laws and so forth. Um, but I don't, I don't think anybody can, um, you know, say the special servicers and services aren't doing their, their job. There's a lot of things coming through the pipeline. A lot of things are happening. Um, and uh, they're certainly not shirking when it comes to uh, pushing these things through the conveyor belt and try to get, trying to get them resolved. Well, and if you're a, like you said, if you're a distressed investor, um, I'll just do a, I don't, we don't try to plug products on this thing very often, but we do have those comments um, in kind of a newer tool, uh, which make them much more searchable. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, via like a Excel cut or anything like that. We have some kind of search tools uh, to help our clients look through that type of stuff. So I was doing that recently, just typing in deed in lieu, DIL, transfer, right? All that type of stuff. 
it's quite amazing how many variations of the term transfer <laughs> the property can appear. You know, what we hope to do next week, you know, um, what we maintain on our website is, um, you know, for example, for those that are not familiar with TREPS products, we maintain things when, for example, when um, Macy's announces store closings, we'll say, here is the latest round of closings and here's where they touch CMBS uh, collateral, things like that. So people can really dig into uh, where the exposure is of, of events like that or where are um, loans that are um, sponsored by CBL, you know, which has been um, kind of on the ropes, that particular REIT, uh, which owns a lot of malls in the U.S. So we try to make it easy for our clients for that. What I hope to do next week is, is create some of these things which make mass lists of um, places where deed in lieu has shown up in the watch list notes uh, or transfer the property or something like that. So um, our users can dig in a little bit deeper without having to go through the mind numbing process that I've done for the last um, several 30 hours. years, you know, uh, <laughs> I expect to one day, you remember the, the old odd couple with uh, Jack Klugman and Tony Randall, mm -hmm. oh, yes. you know, in the beginning would say, you know, uh, I forget who it was. I think it was Tony Randall where the, you know, the opening scene, there's the talk over guy and he says, you know, Tony Randall came home on Tuesday, September 14th and his wife asked him to pack his bags and leave. <laughs> and I kind of feel like after a couple of days of reading through these notes that I expect to walk into my living room and, and have my wife there uh, ready to hand me a, a, a valise and uh, hit the bricks, a you valise. know, a, a, a bus ticket, <laughs> you know, uh, to move in. I am, I am humorless and uh, cranky um, during those times, but we'll try to do one for um, deed in lieu, which is very fluid. You know, guys sometimes can use that as a negotiating tactic, right? We're going to throw the keys back if you don't give us relief. Um, but it is helpful for, for those that want to get ahead of this. I probably shouldn't promise that I'll do this. I should be very careful. It is my anniversary today, believe it or not. And uh, I'm Aww, making promises for congratulations. my- Congratulations. Um, but we'll also try to do something where the flag has kind of suggested that a note sale might be coming. So for those that want to get ahead of their homework, um, you know, look for something. Maybe the end of next week, we'll try to uh, put something out there. We had a listener, Jonathan L., ask us some questions that uh, we thought would create a good opportunity for us to review some news in some areas, whether it's issuance or CMBS bondholder activity like pricing um, or CRE CLOs. Yes, thank you, Mr. L., for listening, by the way, and, and taking the time to reach out to us. Um, as we feel with every one of our listeners, we're really honored by you spending an hour every week with us and we're grateful for your comments, positive or negative, um, and, and your ideas for new topics. This was a great one uh, this week. It was about uh, what issuance looks like, what pricing levels look like uh, for CMBS and CRE CLOs. So I'll run through some highlights. And now that we've put it in our calendar, we'll try to do this once a month for those that uh, are interested. Year to date, we have about 45 billion uh, in issuance. Uh, we're about three quarters of the way through the year. So uh, it feels like we're on pace for something between, you know, 54 and 56, if we can finish out the year on a high note. 
Uh, last year, we had 100 billion, a little over 100 billion in issuance. So um, we did have a great January and February. It looked like we were going to blow through that number. Uh, and we know what happened after that. In terms of spreads, uh, AAA spreads right now for conduit bonds, you know, that would be bonds backed by uh, many loans, you know, 100 or 200 loans um, with multiple borrowers. Those are spreading at about uh, 90 to 95 basis points above the swap curve. That's how things are quoted. Um, double A's, let's call them 140 to 160 over the curve. Uh, single A's, 225 to 275 over the curve. Triple B's, 350 to 400. And why such a big range? Um, it really has to do with shelf, meaning who the issuer is. Uh, some issuers have shelves that are really dedicated to lower leverage, lower LTVs, higher debt service coverage ratios, um, and they get rewarded with lower spreads. Um, other lenders look for more of the middle market, a little bit higher proceeds, um, and they will uh, generate higher spreads as a result. So, uh, Manus, are these kind of like... Uh... These are not new issue spreads, right? This is kind of just, oh, these are new issue spreads? These are things you would have seen come to market in September. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the nice thing is, and, and one of the reasons we might see a nice bump in um, October, November, December is AAAs month over month were tighter by about 10 basis points, maybe even more, maybe 15. I was going to say, we saw a couple of last cash flow bonds in the 80s. Yeah, we did. Recently. Yeah, it was terrific. Um for things like double A's, single A's, triple B's, 30 to 40 basis points uh, tighter month over month. So there's demand for people looking for fixed income, right? Guys have to put money to work to get yield. Uh, the treasury rates are incredibly low. So setting aside retail and lodging and their problems and those um, borrowers are really facing a tough time getting lending. If you are in uh the office industrial multifamily space, you are getting really competitive rates right now. It's not that hard to refinance. Um, and, and it feels pretty good right now, you know, unless we see another leg lower in the economy, uh, a resetting COVID numbers come up, um, you know, uh, those areas seem to be, you know, really more than holding their own. Well, just to give you a sense of, I'm looking at uh, our screen here of new issue pricing back in, February, the triple B minus. So the triple A's have really kind of recovered most of what they lost. Um, the triple B's on the other hand, triple B minuses were in, I'm looking at 335, 350, 345. That's basis points over uh, the relevant swap. Um, so essentially what it means is the bondholders are requiring, you know, three and a half percent additional yield. Um, on top of whatever the swap curve is for that maturity or that duration for the triple B minus exposure. Now, recent deals, 550, 535, 475 was the most recent one. So that's kind of nice. Um, so that part of the curve hasn't really recovered all the way, which makes sense, right? That's where you have some potential for loss uh, at some point during the life of the deal. Yeah, I mean, I would add to that the higher quality stuff, though, I think is in the low 400s uh, at this point, right? We're seeing some high quality triple Bs really get bid up, uh, which is nice. True, but just to true. kind of put this in perspective, when we went through the great financial crisis, 
the most liquid bond ever because it, it came from a $7 billion issuance, really well diversified, was the GS 2007 GG10 A4 bond. People were referred to it as, you know, the GG10 A4 uh, as their benchmark. Where is that trading today, um, you know, over the, the swap or treasury curve? You're making me nostalgic, Manus. We <laughs> used to write about that bond every day in the wire. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, a really diverse pool issued in 2007. Um, like I said, I think it was the second biggest issue ever. The bond was paid off in full, um, so it never has suffered a loss. But at the trough of, or the peak of fear, let's say, call it, in 2008, that AAA bond was trading at a handle of 50, 50 cents on the dollar, which corresponded to a spread of about 1,500 basis points. Um, and it lingered there, not for a long time, but for weeks and weeks and maybe months, it was trading at spreads of 1,000, 1,100, things like that. It was in the deep discount bin. It was like that pile of old CDs that you see in Best Buy <laughs> that they can't get rid of, right? $4.99, you get the, uh, the best of the temptations, right? You could have gotten an A4 for about, uh, from GG10 for about the same price. A lot of careers were made on buying Right. that bond at that time or and similar eventually bonds. Re rebounded to be like a, a price of like 108. Right. Right. Uh, Appaloosa, I believe was the, the yeah. buyer of a lot of these credits at the time. But here, what we're seeing is um, for those triple A's now, the most liquid triple A's we peaked in this crisis at a spread of about 350, give or take in March or April, probably April. And now we're back to 90, 95, hundred. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the level of panic that we see now is a fraction of what it was uh, in 2008. Yeah. Well, that back then there was no, uh, what happened back then is what caused the Fed to come in and create quantitative easing and, and, you know, really step in in a huge way into the market. So I feel like now the also, I mean, interest rates were, the 10 year was at what, like 4% or 4.5% or something. And now it's just a totally different world. I feel like, you know, it's never going to blow out that much because you always know that TALF 2.0 or 3.0 or 4.0 is there. Well, part of it is also that people look back and they think, you know, they, they kind of, you know, bang their, their fist on their head and say, you know, why didn't I do that? Why wasn't right. I a, a buyer of double A's at 20? Right. Right. Or AJ's at 20 and AM's at, at 30, like Appaloosa was. And I think that that's putting a um, floor under the market. It's yeah. keeping the market um, from getting too far away from itself. In addition to the fact that the stuff that was underwritten, you know, from 15 to 20 had much higher uh, credit enhancement, uh, lower LTVs, higher debt service coverage ratio, right? The, the hygiene of lending was better, which keeps, you know, the floor on uh, these bonds higher but there's also an element of, I don't want to be left out, right? You know, as soon as these things get to distress levels, uh, absent SASB hotels or absent SASB malls, you know, people are ready to jump in and, uh, and pick these things up. One more data point, because um, our listener asked, you know, where are spreads on CRE, uh, CLOs? I would call the market 140 to 160 at the AAA level. Um, and I would call it 
450 to 500, maybe the triple B minus level. Um, I would call that, you know, there's two types of CLOs. Some are static and some are managed. If it's static, it's probably on the tighter end of that window. And if it's managed, it's probably at the wider end of that, that window. Um, but as we said, thank you for the question. And we'll look to update this uh, towards the beginning of every month. Looking at commercial properties, in the past week, we released a report that showed that as a result of the coronavirus recession, many of them have lost as much as one quarter of their value or more. Give us a little bit of a highlight, Manus, of what that analysis showed. Well, what we were looking for, we've talked about this in other educational segments, and it has to do with the fact that once a loan goes into special servicing, often a, a new valuation is requested by the special servicer. They will put this out to an appraiser. The appraiser might be a Cushman and Wakefield uh, or a Newmark or a JLL, and they'll come back with their independent third-party view of what the collateral is worth. We went through all of the loans that saw new valuations of the collateral in the last um, several months. And, uh, we have to give credit where credit is due. Somebody did beat us to the punch on this, and that was Lee Overby of Wells, who put out a similar analysis. Fortunately, our numbers were quite uh, aligned. They both looked at the market the same way, but hers was picked up by the Financial Times and others. Um, so uh, give her a shout out for uh, getting that out. But what we saw was that uh, in the lodging space and in the retail space for properties that were reappraised, the average for both was a 30% lower number now than it was uh, at the time the loan was made, which may have been 2013, 14, 15, 16, but that's the average of what we saw. Uh, I think for Lee's number, the number was 27 or 28%. So we're very close. Uh, there were modest um, differences in methodology, which account for uh, the differences. Um, so that if you're, if you're a, a balance sheet lender, and you want to know, you know, where do I stand right now? Are my, my borrowers above or below water? It's not a bad back of the envelope reading, rating to say, all right, this guy was a uh, 55 when I made this hotel loan five years ago. Um, let me haircut that value by 30% now and see what his implied LTV would be today, uh, accounting for that value and whatever amortize, amortization he has made in the last five years, right? And if the guy is still in the money, right, you probably have a fighting chance to work something out for him. But if he's, you know, if you were pushing the envelope and had made a 75 LTV loan, which is rare for banks, but if you did, um, you know, you're, it's probably a different story. Well, Manus, what I found interesting in looking at some of this data is that I don't really remember the last time around when we were looking at this stuff and you every week, every day, you were getting new appraisals on distressed properties, distressed loans. I don't really remember many of them, if any, having increases in valuations. And although the vast, vast majority of the changes in appraisals that have happened are decreases in value, there were some notable increases. And it seems that, um, they're mostly from uh, 2014, 2015, 2010 deals. Uh, one of them we wrote about today, I think, in the Tripwire, which was 660 Madison Avenue Retail, which is where Barney's is. 
there was another one uh, which caught my eye, one Emerson Lane in Secaucus, New Jersey, um, or Secaucus for those of you who are from New Jersey. And the, it's an industrial property. It's, it's owner, owner occupied. I guess the, the main tenant is also the owner of the building. And, and there's some story there about why it's in default, but it's just kind of wild to think that even though there's, it just goes to show you how crazy this pandemic is, right? So because of the pandemic, the loan is in default, but because the loan was appraised five or six years ago, and maybe it's industrial so that that market has grown very well, that the actual like kind of long-term value of the property has actually increased. So it's like the, the income side and the value side are not necessarily lining up in every scenario here. Yeah, it usually comes, you know, we used to call these story bonds back in the day when a broker would have to, you know, spend 20 minutes on the phone with a potential buyer kind of talking through the, the nuances of the story. And, and that seems to be the case uh, when these pop up. The one we wrote about this week was a, basically a retail condominium that Barney's had fully occupied they, Barney's, you know, basically uh, went chapter 11. Um, part of it was because of this one Madison Avenue property, the rent on the property was going to reset from, I believe, 10 million to 30 million. Barney's could not afford that. Um, uh, revealed that they were going to close that store and in the process revealed that they were going to actually uh, file for bankruptcy. Uh, that store is closing but it is in the Upper East Side of New York. And I would have to think that people looked at this and said the conversion value of this land to high-end uh, co-ops or rentals is so high that even though we're getting, we will be getting no income from Barney's um, or the firm that actually acquired them out of bankruptcy very shortly, that once we get by this, uh, it's such a prime piece of real estate that um, it's going to work out okay. So uh, that's what I would call a story loan to uh, come back to the kind of vernacular we had uh, back in the day. It goes to like Lonnie's whole concept of highest and best use. You know, that's what the valuation is supposed to be. Well, not always, but that's generally what the valuation is supposed to be based on, right? So even though a tenant is not paying their rent right now, a new tenant in this same property would pay a rent of X and that rent should uh, turn into an NOI of Y and then divide by a cap rate and you get a value. So just kind of cool to see some of these, uh, I guess, um, I don't know, glimmers of hope or spots of uh, positivity in the, in the, the, the dross of uh, negative appraisals. We've seen other things like this. It always seems to be uh, Fifth Avenue or Madison Avenue, um, Park Avenue, that type of thing, where there's properties that can be converted. There's a similar story, I think it was 520 Madison Avenue six months ago, where Ralph Lauren was in the business, in the building. And uh, the owners of the building said, if I convert this to high-end uh, co-op, the, the property should be worth this. And your rent is a function of the value of the building, which was no longer supportable by an office tenant. I think this was pre-COVID, so a lot could have changed since then. But 
uh, you do see like things like this periodically, and uh, it's interesting when they come up. Turning to office across the U.S., about 25% of office workers have returned physically to their offices, except, of course, New York City, where that number is probably around 10%. We worked with CompStack, a partner of ours, to create a report on the national impact of COVID on the office space. Joe, what were some of the takeaways of that? Sure. So this is a, an extension of a report that we did a month or two ago when we first announced our integration with CompStack. Um, we've actually had a, a nice amount of interest from clients on the CMBS and the CRE side uh, to look at the real deep granular lease data that CompStack has to offer. Um, so just a couple of the takeaways. I mean, you should read the report, but uh, the number of free months that uh, uh, lessors are offering to lessees as a percentage of the total lease term has increased uh, almost 30% compared to the same time last year. So now free months being offered are, are around 5% of the total term of the lease. Uh, we actually talked about this also with Lonnie last week. It wasn't about office, it was about multifamily, but it's the same concept, right? buildings, landlords, and brokers are having to offer more in the way of uh, concessions and incentives to get people to sign leases. Um, and then where kind of TREPS data come, comes in is looking at year-over-year -year changes in net operating income and net cash flow levels for office buildings. And around uh, a 4% drop uh, based on Q2 2020 data versus Q2 2019 data um, there's a lot of caveats with that data because we haven't gotten everything in yet for Q2 2020. Um, but that's probably a, a, a good gist of where things are. Looking at the UK, our man on the ground there, Vivek Anandatani, who's actually writing a weekly Trep Talk blog on what's going on there, has given us some updates. A couple of interesting notes this week, Joe. Well, I'll let Manus take the, the more interesting one, but uh, the one big headline was that uh, Google has committed to some expansion uh, with an, a, taking on an additional 70,000 square feet uh, close to their new $1 billion, $1 billion pound headquarters in King's Cross. Um, they've also agreed to extend a lease at Central St. Giles or Gile. I don't know how you say that. And office development, I always got to bust, uh, I always have to bust Vivek's chops whenever I read his news. It's, I just find it funny. Uh, an office development near Tottenham Court Road for a further decade. It's 160,000 square foot lease at that building. Um, and there's some, some more stuff about all the different amenities that are being offered. I don't think the uh, gyms and the free-for-all fridges and communal allotment are really big sellers at this point but maybe post-vaccine they will be. Now, the other you know, fun part of this news was learning for the first time, I guess, I guess I probably knew if you asked me, but I didn't ever, no one ever told me who the biggest landowner in the UK is. That would be the queen. There, there you go. Yeah. I was gonna say, you're keeping everybody in suspense right now. That would be the queen. She uh, owns, it, it, I read this, but I don't have my notes. I didn't write it down. But if I'm not mistaken, 13.4 uh, billion worth of uh, assets in London, or perhaps in England, I'm not really sure. Um, 
you can call this fake news uh, if you'd like. But uh, I think I'll get most of the story right. I believe the queen wrote down those assets by 25% recently. Um, something tells me it wasn't the queen herself, but it was somebody uh, with a pocket protector and a... I think she's actually a listener. So I think HP she might have taken... She might have taken, yeah, she might have ripped out her HP 12C and said, hey, man, I said around 30% is the number. Uh, thank you, Queen, for tuning in. And, uh, you know, we it's appreciate your, grace, your, your, your listenership. But the interesting thing is that even though these properties are not cash flow producing in some cases anymore, uh, because the tenants are not paying rent, the Queen will get a bailout. And the reason she will get a bailout is that it is stipulated that her income can never go down. So it is locked at whatever last year's number was. And if the income from these properties does not reach last year's number, uh, the British taxpayer, which would include Vivek, I assume, um, will have to reach into their pocket to uh, help out the queen. <laughs> you should uh, check out the Trep Talk blog. You get all the real details written by our man Vivek. We have some shout outs this week and a number of them, many of them kept our staff very busy sending out loan modifications for those that requested it. Laura L from Chicago, Mark E, Christian Babu M, and Jerry B were some of the ones that we got requests from. And the deal of the week. Deal of the week. Deal of the week. Um, as I said last week, I'm very, um, you know, I, I like the, the, the retail stuff. And if we start seeing hotel deals, I'll, I'll, I'll like those too. Anywhere where something gets done in a segment that has suffered. So uh, I like bringing good news. Uh, this one, Newmark Merrill has acquired the shops at South Bay Pavilion in Carson, California. It's a 182,000 square foot property. Uh, some of the tenants include Burlington and Ross Dress for Less. I believe there's a Smashburger there too, and some other casual dining facilities. It is about 18 miles from Los Angeles. The entire complex has uh, about a million square feet, so it's part of a mall, which makes it even better uh, that this property got sold. We think that's terrific. Sandy Segal, Jim Patton, Brad Pearl, repped Newmark Merrill as internal uh, brokers for the deal. And the story came via Shopping Center Business, which is a nice website uh, that covers stuff like this. Um, transactions, sales, new development, stuff like that. So it's one of my sites that I like to visit from time to time to get a sense of what's happening on the ground. So. Uh, congratulations to them on breaking that story and uh, to Newmark Merrill for uh, putting their faith in the retail segment of the market in California. Certain provisions of the CARES Act provided community banks a delay in the implementation of CECL, which is the current expected credit losses. In our educational segment today, we're going to do a deeper dive on CECL. Joe, take it away. Oh, CECL. Um... And it's not the lion. Uh, <laughs> I've been neck deep in Cecil land for since about 2016, um, which is when, I mean, I think the initial 
rules or the the um, draft rules came out years before that, but the actual uh, first adopters, which were the large banks and large lending institutions, uh, started at the beginning of 2020. And essentially what it is, is it's a new way to reserve for uh, losses on held to maturity debt securities. So that includes um, loans, mortgages, uh, bonds, if you, if you happen to hold them in your held to maturity bucket, some uh, different types of leases, and uh, maybe some other stuff that I'm forgetting. So held to maturity, debt securities, leases, trade receivables, and loans, if they are held at amortized cost. See how fun the last six years of my life have been? Um, so it must be a blast at uh, cocktail parties. Well, it's like, what did we say? It's like, uh, you know, when your grandma asks you what you do uh, for work at Thanksgiving, now just point her to the podcast. It used to just be like, grandma, don't ask, please. Uh, you don't, you're going to fall asleep 30 seconds in. But the moral of this story is that in the old days, if you were a bank, let's say, or a mortgage read or some sort of other um, lender, you would have a book of loans, right? And on your balance sheet. And those are loans that you've originated or purchased and you're servicing those loans and you're collecting the payments and so on. You're just living your life and running your business. And when a loan, when it became evident that a loan or, or more than one uh, were getting into trouble and you thought that there was a probable chance that you were going to take a loss on this loan, you would have to actually incur the loss. They called it an incurred loss methodology. You'd have to incur the loss through a reserve and it would be based on, you know, you did an updated valuation on the property and you did the math and you said, hey, it's a $100 million loan. I think I'm going to be able to recover $90 million. So let me take a $10 million reserve loss here. And then when you actually did, you know, uh, resolve the loan sometime down the line, you would just do the um, true up, right? So if the loss was $10 million, the actual loss was $10 million, that's fine. You've already reserved for it. So it's net wash. And if it's less than 10 million, you get a kind of a benefit from accruing back that kind of gain. So anyway, the point of the matter was you only had to care about the loans where there was really a problem, right? Or where you really expected something bad to happen. The whole point of CECL, it's called current expected credit loss, is to forecast life of loan expected losses for all the loans or all the held to maturity debt securities on your balance sheet. So imagine going from, you know, you're a bank and you have a thousand commercial real estate loans. You used to have 10 or 15 of them that were in trouble or 20 maybe. So you could do the analysis one by one by one, or you could, you know, apply some sort of model to it and go through that process and, and move on with your life. Now, the moment you write a loan and put it on your balance sheet, the following quarter when you're reporting your accounting statements, you have to actually take some sort of reserve against the possibility of future losses on that loan. Manus, so tell me, Joe, um, for kind of the club conduit type loans that are on bank balance sheets, right? So fairly low LTV, high debt service coverage ratio in the office, industrial, multifamily segment. Like what were we talking about in terms of numbers that somebody would, would see for this on that type of loan pre-COVID 
and what has changed since COVID began? Yeah, so that's that's a good question. So, and I hate to not give you a straight answer, but the straight answer is their reserves generally were in like the 60 basis point to, you know, 1.25, 1.5% range. However, in most cases, the actual models that banks are running are not producing 60 basis points to 100 basis points in expected losses back then. What was happening was their models were producing 20 basis points or 40 basis points in expected losses, but regulators, the FDIC, the OCC, the Fed were all very much, uh, you know, pushing on the banks to make sure that they were reserving a lot, to be very conservative, to make sure that they were. So there was this constant, I'll give Russell Hughes, a, a colleague of ours, he has this, this slide where it's like two sumo wrestlers pulling at one guy in the middle and it's the auditors, right, who are saying you have to apply the rule as it's stated in the, in the guidelines, right, in the FASB gap accounting standards. And then there's the regulators who are saying, yeah, apply the rules, sure, but we think your reserves are way too low, right? So there was this push and pull. And I think over the years, reserves had been, you know, increased significantly with qualitative adjustments. So let's say it was like 1%, right? 60 basis points to 1%. Now with Cecil, uh, especially the fact that Cecil was started to be, um, you know, actually accounted for at the same time that the COVID pandemic was hitting the world, right? So there was like this adjustment where you essentially, some banks doubled their reserves just to go from incurred loss to Cecil loss. And then there was a further adjustment, which was, and we have to take into account our expectations of the future macroeconomic situation, which now is extremely dire, right? Compared to what it was three months ago. So you could get, you, you know, you have some banks that just doubled, some banks that went 5X, right? And then even going from Q1 to Q2, there was some significant increases due to just, you know, updated valuations on the properties and also updated you know, we had GDP of negative 30% and unemployment rate of 14%. And these models are built on these types of macroeconomic inputs. So kind of a wild time for Cecil to actually be implemented. I think the community banks have until the end of 2021 or the beginning of 2022 to actually do it. Hopefully the, uh, the world is a little calmer by then. But for any of you that are still listening, kudos to you. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> it's... Uh... I, you know, I, I know that um, having seen it before, you know, it, it's the kind of thing where you load in, you know, hundreds or thousands of loans with some data and you're coming out with loan by loan uh, output. And, and, and we do know that some, uh, you know, regulators look at this data and, and try to get to the bottom of it. And it's a lot of it is built off decades worth of CMBS losses and, and, and so forth. But let's, you know, I, I just want to dig just a little bit deeper. Um, just so we can squeeze out, you know, the final five to 10 people that are still listening. <laughs> you know, if, if you have a, a 55 LTV office loan and, and you had like a 140 X DSCR in January, you're not looking at a 40 basis point reserve, are you? I would think that that's no. four or five basis points. Right, right. That's right. So a low uh, leverage, you know, high debt service coverage, especially office in a baseline scenario back then where values are expected to grow, you know, one or 2% a year and unemployment rate stays flat. I mean, you were at like 
five, 10, 15 basis points, right? Depending on the region and, and the vintage. Now, after that, now that we have in Q2, we had scenarios where CRE prices were dropping by 20% in the first quarter of the, of the scenario. So maybe you go from five to 10 basis points all the way up to 50 or 60 for that type of loan. But for the loans that are like 70 LTV, you know, 1.25 DSCR, where they're close to that edge, that 1.0, 100% cliff, when you run that, that type of downturn scenario, it really increases because the, the model itself is not a linear model, right? It's like low, low risk, low risk, low risk, high risk, right? It's kind of a, a zero or one proposition. And so the funny part about all this or the, 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 annoying or distracting or obstacle part of all this is that when you are going in and talking to banks about this, especially when you're talking to the originators and the line of business folks, you would run their loans through a model and say, Hey, you're, you know, this loan's going to take 15 basis points in loss or 20 basis points in loss. And they'd say that's loans never going to take a loss. And the whole point was the, the model itself is not necessarily going to be spot on accurate for one particular loan because it's a probabilistic thing. But across the whole portfolio, you were generally coming up with very reasonable sound numbers where the model would say every loan is going to take a 20 basis point loss and or 15 basis point loss or whatever it is. So therefore, the whole portfolio takes 15 basis points when in reality, what will happen is one or two loans that account for 15 or 20 basis points of the whole portfolio will take large losses. That's more like how it happens in real life. So the punchline is you have something which... Uh, allows you to meet the accounting change and it's defensible at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's I, a, I just, we're, we're, I mean, we're neat. We're, we're, again, we're neck deep in it right now is because the quarter just ended and we're having, you know, all sorts of conversations because last quarter, the outlook was extremely dire, right? So Cecil reserves increased this quarter. The outlook is much more positive. A lot of the prognosticators are saying we've, we've kind of hit the bottom a month ago and now we're coming out of it. So technically, if you abide by the standard, you should be reducing your reserves a lot. But that really goes against what most CFOs and accounting people want to do. They want to keep this thing steady. They don't want volatility in their, in their earnings. So it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of, uh, if you abide by the letter of the standard, you would be having increases and decreases every quarter, but that's not necessarily what anybody wants to see. For those that, that are still listening, um, we should point out that uh, thanks, Dave. You know, Joe, Joe does do you know, 60th birthday parties. You know, he does meet and greets. He'll <laughs> he'll show up at your uh, car dealership grand opening. He'll do kids' birthday parties. Like there's just no end to the amount of entertainment this guy brings. So if you're looking for something unique and you know something your neighbors will never stop talking about, you know, Joe's your guy. Well, you want to know something crazy? My wife is a recruiter and she used to recruit for one of the big banks and she recruited for the Cecil group. So she actually knew what I was talking about when she overheard me on the phone with people. So even though she still fell asleep when I talked about it. Well, you, you probably guys. put it, you drove a stake through any potential future uh, dinner invites you might get, didn't you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you guys must be really fun to listen, talk about that. So if you're planning ahead for any upcoming celebrations like Halloween and Thanksgiving, you may want to take note that the CDC has released guidelines that recommend some creative adaptations to your holiday normal. 
trick-or-treating and Thanksgiving may be very different than normal? Well, I felt like for several years, Halloween was on this downward slide before this, right? There was way too much fun size being handed out. And if you know the fun size, it's <laughs> small. You know, like the three musketeers that's like half an inch wide. There's nothing fun about it, right? People were not giving the bars out anymore. It was that stupid fun size. There was way too many circus peanuts. You know, those like orange things that are like Terrible. all chewy. They're like marshmallow. Terrible. Three Musketeers, Clark Bars, Butterfingers, and God help us, Raisins. Come on, people, step up. Get the full bar, the Almond Joy, the Reese's, and here I'll go a little contrarian. Dig deep and get the candy corn, man. I love the candy Ugh. corn. Mm. You just said no. Almond Joy, candy corn. Almond Joy, Reese's, no. candy corn. No. Might as well get some peeps. Baby exactly. Ruth, whatchamacallit, 100 grand. <laughs> so... My thing here is that, you know, you used to, in order to scare people, you know, outside your house, you know, you always have that one house on the block that goes all out for Halloween and they put, you know, it's like almost like a haunted house outside their house. At this point, you just have to stand in your front yard without a mask on, right? That's the haunted house. And then if you really want to take it to the next level, you just, you know, when people walk by, you cough a little and then- By the way, we are not advocating that. Well, if you want to scare people on yeah, this Halloween, if you're really just, committed. Just leave the candy what, at the bottom of the driveway. This is the first year that my son would actually be old enough to really kind of understand what's going on and walk around and do it. So I don't know, I don't know what we're going to do, but I'm, I'm trick-or-treating. I don't care. We'll wear masks. Maybe I'll dress up like Marty McFly did when he went to go see his dad as the spaceman. You know, that whole outfit. Helmet. The helmet, the, the hazmat suit and everything. He'll be safe. Exactly. With that, we'll close. Thanks to our producer, Keegan St. Anjmay. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or a comment, send us an email at podcast at trep.com. For more info, visit trep.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you, as always, for listening and stay well. All right. 